Welcome to the 54th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today is Monday, November 9th, 2020. On today's episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I talk with Dr. Stephen M. Underhill about his book, The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI. I think at the, at the highest level, the FBI is a propaganda organization, and I think implicitly it's making the argument that it's hard to believe that it stopped because it never apologized or acknowledged that the FBI therefore has historical and likely contemporary hidden links to the Republican Party. Again, all FBI directors uh, are, have been Republicans, which is unusual. And why that should be significant to us is then it seems unavoidable to conclude that our domestic life is organized by that propaganda because they are the enforcers. We will hear more from Dr. Underhill in a bit. Last week, voters in America went to the polls and elected Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States. The election of Biden also means that Kamala Harris is the first woman and person of black and South Asian descent to be elected vice president. In her speech on Saturday night, Harris mentioned that while she may be the first woman in this role, she will certainly not be the last. A truly exciting possibility for people all over this country who do not look like the leaders we've had in the past. I, for one, can't wait. Our nation, our families and friends, our social media followers, we all have a bit of reconciling to do. To do so, we must progress onward towards the future and not look back. Stephen M. Underhill is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Marshall University. His interest in rhetoric is grounded in the interplay of history and politics especially as it is recorded in primary source documents. More to the point, he is interested in studying institutionalized power in critical and cultural contexts, which directs his focus to matters of law enforcement and national security discourse. Stephen is interested in how law enforcement speaks to and about its different publics to preserve and defend power structures. He has published in Rhetoric and Public Affairs, Quarterly Journal of Speech, and Western Journal of Communication. His recent book from Michigan State University Press, The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI, is a formative project that coupled his interests in rhetoric and archival research. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen M. Underhill. My name is Stephen Underhill. I am an associate professor of communication studies at Marshall University. I teach rhetorical criticism and public address. Excellent. And Marshall University, that's in Huntington, West Virginia, right? That is correct. How is life in Huntington these days? 
Life is pretty good. Um, Huntington has been a nice home for both me and my wife. Uh, we arrived here in 2012, and it's given us a, a a nice platform to work with good students and good faculty, and uh, start a family and just live live pretty comfortably. Excellent. I've never been to Huntington, but I think that I've always, it's always been on a peripheral for some reason. So interesting. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Enjoying it there. You arrived in 2012, and when you arrived, you arrived from College Park, Maryland, where you, right. just, where you had just finished your PhD, and that was in rhetoric. Yes. And now you're in a communications department, correct? Yes. Excellent. So could you talk a little bit about how that works and how that has impacted your scholarship? Uh, so at getting earning my PhD at the University of Maryland was quite central to my path because I arrived there in uh, fall of 2005 and my advisor was teaching a class on the Cold War. And in my application materials, I said I was interested in the Cold War. So I was, I felt like I should take the class. Uh, and uh, in the class, she had us all go next door to uh, the National Archives at College Park to retrieve uh, an archival document of our choice, just to sort of get our, our hands dirty doing archival research. And I loved it. Like I loved, I loved working with government documents. And I remember sitting in the research room at NARA, looking at pe these people who were just obviously faculty and just thinking to myself, what a fun gig it would be to come here to do work, you know, on a, on a paid level, you know, as a, as a professor. And then I'm looking around and I see that who's helping them are uh, college students. And I'm like, well, I'm a college student. And then it's like, well, wait a second. Maybe this maybe this dream is like way closer than I thought. Uh, and I, I poked a little bit and uh, eventually I was hired uh, to do um, archival work at the National Archives. And uh, my research then put me between the National Archives and the University of Maryland. And um, that that opportunity to live and work in sort of in the DC metro area while studying the DC metro area uh, was formative to who I was to, to who I became as a scholar uh, it, it, it kind of gave me that the feeling for for sort of the, the nature or the, the vibe of the federal government workforce and I think it gave me some perspective on how to think about researching the federal government as a researcher at NARA, what were some of your responsibilities and duties? And maybe more generally, how was that experience? Uh, it was a it was a wonderful experience. Um, my duties eventually in time put me in charge of FBI records and DOJ records. Uh, and it was my job to learn the records that are organized like a haystack. Uh, it is it is. A very complicated set of records and there's a lot of them uh, and it became my job just to know them so that when letters came in or visitors came in uh, somebody in the building would know how to help them would know how to locate what they were looking for and so it, it became kind of the, in my mind it very much was uh, the job of finding a needle in a haystack and it was my job to know the haystack so i could find needles and I think it was enjoyable so I know that this is not the, the primary point of our conversation today, but I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. So if you will indulge me with one more uh, tangential question. 
Um, what are some of the methods? I mean, I can only imagine the amount of knowledge that you had to maintain and retain. What are some of the methods that you practice while you work there to, to learn that information? It was kind of, it was exhilarating. I think okay. it, it was, it was, I had access that was unprecedented and I, I just read everything I could read. And I would pay attention to the trends of research coming in. So researchers would come in and they'd say, hey, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. And so I would take an interest mm -hmm. in what they were studying and try to figure out its significance. And I'd, I'd pay attention to the patterns of what was being requested to then develop kind of expertise in those areas. Mm -hmm. And I made it a, a game to, to, to get as good as I could at it to just learn as much as I could, uh, which meant a lot of memory and memorization uh, of what was where uh, for the sake of kind of just being, learning the skill to triangulate, you know, if kind of like walking around Walmart blindfolded, mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure out where something would be based on where something else is. Not, not exactly scientific. Right, I, I, I think it's smart though. So you mentioned a word that I want to unpack a little bit, unprecedented. And it's a theme, obviously, that runs through your book. And we'll talk about your book here, the title of which is The Manufacture of Consent, J. Edgar Hoover and the Rhetorical Rise of the FBI, which was published by Michigan State University Press earlier this year. So I want to talk a little bit about how this project came to be. I assume it grew out of your dissertation project. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about how this project has evolved in the last eight years or so? Uh, sure thing. So the dissertation project was uh, more, I believe, of a mapping expedition where I was interested in I was interested in what happens between the 1930s and the 1940s in the FBI because when you read the histories, there's kind of this. In my reading, this, this disjuncture, as in, in the 1930s, you have the war on crime, and a number of books have been written about the war on crime. In the 1940s, you have World War II and the dawn of the Cold War. Uh, and, but that transition zone between what's happening with the war on crime and the FBI as a gangster organization, and World War II with the FBI as an anti-espionage organization that then, you know, folds into an anti-communist organization. Uh, I was interested in understanding that flow uh, because I, I didn't think it was well-defined, whereas it was kind of well-mapped how World War II flows into the Cold War, where we just switch enemies from fascism to communism. How did we move from gangsters to fascists? And so because I was trying to understand that wrinkle, um, it kind of set my dissertation back. Like I had to look at the first big J. Edgar Hoover campaign, which creates this result of a book that studies 20 years of time, um, for, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, and so in mapping out the gangsters, I, and I did not know I was doing this, but what I was mapping out was the militarization of law enforcement. And okay. it's because law enforcement gets militarized in the 1930s, especially at the federal level, 
it was then ready. The FBI was then ready to suddenly become like a national anti-spy police force in the 1940s, which set it up for for that Cold War moment. Um, and so the dissertation does does that work of just understanding the flow there. And then it is after I graduate, I, I come across the work of Richard Slotkin and his work on the frontier myth. And that is when I believe that it, I mean, the, the, the dissertation project is rhetorical in that I'm very interested in J. Edgar Hoover's speeches. And I'm looking at the speeches uh, and how he's talking about war uh, between the war on crime and the World War II and the Cold War. But it's when I move to Richard and really begin to learn about the frontier myth. I think that's when the project takes its its full rhetorical turn, and we are now understanding how it's mythology that's anima- animating the FBI um, from the moment Hoover turns to propaganda at the beginning of New Deal to save his hide and to elevate the FBI. What I really appreciated about your book is that in my opinion, while you mentioned it focuses on a specific time in, in the FBI's existence, your argument doesn't begin there, right? Uh, and it doesn't end there. It, does, it, it begins uh, perhaps years earlier uh, when we think about industrialization, which is also going on during this time, and, and through Reconstruction, um, Franklin, I'm sorry, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, this idea of the frontier myth, which you're mentioning. And then it also doesn't end with J. Edgar Hoover. It it continues on. And we can see some of this in today's political climate, which I want to talk about. But before we get to all of those things, I wonder, what is the main argument of your book? I think at the the highest level, uh, the FBI is a propaganda organization. Uh, And I think implicitly it's making the argument that it's hard to believe that it stopped because it never apologized mm. or acknowledged uh, that the FBI, therefore, has historical and likely contemporary hidden links to the Republican Party. Uh, again, all FBI directors uh, are, have been Republicans, which is unusual. Uh, and why that should be significant to us is then it seems unavoidable to conclude that uh, our domestic life is organized by that propaganda because they are the enforcers. Uh, You examine, as you call them, five sets of considerations in this book, and I will admit I boiled them down, okay? Uh, You examine uh, through through, through a rhetorical lens, uh, film noir and other popular cultural elements during this time period, propaganda by the FBI. what I would describe and you describe as Hoover's hard-lined warrior image and how that um, grapples with his uh, romantic relationships, uh, complexities of the New Deal through FDR and extending into the Truman era and beyond, uh, the contemporary nature of red fascism and the rise of American neoliberalism, and then also textual dimensions of the FBI, which reveal it defied the constitutional order which justified its existence. So I wonder if we could walk through each of those points and have a, a, a many discussions about why they were chosen as considerations for analysis and what we can learn by looking at them. I would I love to. Sorry? I said I would love to. 
Excellent. So why don't we start first with film noir and popular culture? How are we make what connections do you make between that subject and FBI propaganda? Okay, so dating the rise of FBI propaganda to the early part of the New Deal puts us uh, between 1933 to 1935. And in this moment, you have the elevation of the gangster genre. Uh, Western was dominant from about 1915 to 1930. And then with the Great Depression, it it forced a, a change within film genre. And so uh, with film noir, uh, I'm talking about urban crime, which means I'm talking about the gangster genre, but then I'm also talking about spy versus spy, right? And so with these genres, we're talking about cityscapes that are mean, that are scary. Uh, in these cityscapes, uh, you have uh, multicultural environments, uh, you have racial mixing, you have cultural mixing. And I think to get at what we're talking about, uh, you have something that's breaking from the Anglo-American tradition that had come before where it would have been an all-white Protestant scene. And now we have not just downtown areas, but downtown areas that are marked by uh, multiculturalism and diversity. And what I believe, why this is significant for the rise of the FBI is, A, Hoover then moves into Hollywood to make gangster films. Uh, and some of them are obvious and some of them are not, because in some of them, the FBI makes a very, uh, is, is represented. So in the, in the film G-Man, for example, uh, the FBI and the FBI director are represented. But he makes other films as well, where, you know, walking out of the theater, you want, would not have said, that the FBI was present in, in the making of this movie. In this genre, you have uh, images of cities under collapse and cities under attack, very much Gotham City, right? Just, just think about Gotham City from Batman. And the thing that you need is a Batman. You need some kind of superpower that is above the law that can come in uh, enforce order because without the forcing of order the city itself will succumb to its own vices and those vices are self-evident because it's a multicultural environment and so there's racism clearly embedded here and it creates then an imagination for the public of what it needs for a superpower law enforcement organization and that is how the fbi was represented uh, in superhero terms I'm not a expert on film noir. I could name a handful of the, the the films that I know and the films that perhaps are referenced in your book, like Scarface and M and things like that. But how can we see this idea of a systematic control or um, a surveillance state even replicated in our media today? I would think about the the genre of the superhero film. I would think about how cities are, and the country itself, uh, are vulnerable to external attack or internal invasion, and what the country needs are law enforcers or power enforcers that are above the law. So again, the Batman type, uh, especially the Batman time, I would, I would think. Vigilant, right? As in the system needs to be protected from itself because the system itself is weak. One of the fascinating 
connections that you made that's apparent and we know what's about Ronald Reagan, right? Being the president. And I know maybe he wasn't the president of the, of the SAG uh, in the thirties, but, but just the, the, that connection, right. Between um, a Hollywood actor, uh, administrator moving then into politics, right. I think that was a really fascinating and important point that you made. And, and that's something else that maybe you have some words for. Yeah, and so, I mean, I look at Reagan as coming out of this this moment where suddenly it's clear that the has a tremendous amount of power and that representation, you know, self-representation of how, how you can develop a persona through your access to camera and also through uh, seclusion and preventing yourself and hiding yourself from being photographed or filmed uh, in ways that are less hospitable, uh, you can create identity. And I, I, it's clear that this is what Hoover did. And it would also go on to define Reagan's own politics. Scholar, uh, rhetorical critics have already talked about how Reagan was uh, one of the most manicured presidents we've ever had. That people, people have this feel that they know who Ronald Reagan was because of his movies or because of his, his photo ops. But people don't understand how much was happening backstage to prevent negative media. And then like, how many years later comes out, right, that uh, Nancy Reagan was into tarot cards and things like that, which would have destroyed them, you know, if in the 1980s, it would have been, it would have scandalized the White House mm. uh, because it, w- it, w- it ran counterculture to the cultural currents uh, that they had used to get elected. And so clearly we were watching a president who uh, had created almost like a vacuum of information, right? What we knew about him was information that he let us know about him. How was the preservation of Hoover's image critical to the rhetorical rise of the FBI? You time travel back to that moment. A number of things are happening just at that early part of the New Deal. FDR is coming in. Uh, the war on crime is taking off because of uh, the interests of both FDR and Attorney General Cummings uh, because they want to show strong leadership in the war on crime. And real quick, what that is, is that classic movement against gangsters, against people like John Dillinger, uh, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, uh, Pretty Boy Floyd. Th- these are names that I presume everybody knows because of how many times they've been represented in media. And this shows just how much propaganda the DOJ did to sort of inflate the type of problem that's out there in the world that this new deal is capable of fighting against. So it's it's that's one context happening. Another context happening is uh, J. Edgar Hoover is he's kind of in trouble in the early part of the 1930s for a number of reasons. The big reason is he'd already been in the DOJ for 20 years, or a little little under 20 years, uh, and he had kind of worn out his welcome to the people who were coming into the DOJ at the start of the New Deal. Uh, at the start of the New Deal, you see a an influx of of reformers, like social social worker type reformers and uh, lawyerly type reformers, and they're interested in transforming the the DOJ. Uh, into a place of rehabilitation with the Bureau of Prisons. Uh, The Bureau of Prisons was started by Herbert Hoover not many years before. It was a relatively young agency. And the point of the Bureau of Prisons, the point of our penitentiary system, was rehabilitation. 
Sometimes they're called Department of Corrections for a reason. Uh, they were trying to correct people. And so the idea was you would train people, you would school people, you would get people the medical help they would need, and then they would go out and be better members of society. So this is bad for Hoover because this has nothing to do with chasing and killing criminals, which is kind of how he staked his, his identity. Another problem for Hoover is, it's again, early 19, mid-1930s or 1933 or so, it's he decides that he wants to dip his toe into propaganda to combat the Bureau of Prisons. Like he wants to get his vision of the FBI out there. And so he's beginning to do more work with mass media. Well, right when that happens, mass uh, reporters come back and they start saying, oh, this guy has no girlfriend. This guy has no wife. That's interesting because in American motif of what a crime fighter looks like, he's he's a straight man with a few kids and a wife who's at home uh, you know, tending the homestead. So this guy does not look like the guy that we would imagine a crime fighter would look like. Oh, that's interesting. This guy has a number two who's also single and they spend a lot of time together. And that guy's not married either. And also look at how these guys dress. They don't dress like we would imagine crime fighters to dress and one of the uh, one of the writers even uses the term dandy to describe uh describe this and then the uh, people would come out saying hey and this guy J. Edgar hoover he lives with his mom another like sign out there about uh, about a sexuality sign and so this is also a problem for hoover because uh as these stories come out they could tank him and in, in making the situation even more complex is his relationship with Tolson. It, they, they were, they were, if you can't use the word marriage, it's only because of legal reasons. They were two men who were committed to each other, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for 40 years. They vacationed to each other, with each other. They willed each other, each other's property. So when whoever passed, the other person would get their stuff. They had adjacent burials. So we're talking about a committed intimate relationship here and that itself is complicating because this is what exactly the type of thing that hoover would need to hide and it seems to be happening in broad daylight with the second in command at the fbi and so with this complex of problems the the solution becomes this this film noir i mean he needs to have an identity that would rebut the idea that he could be gay he needs an identity that would justify the type of FBI uh, that would reject the Bureau of Prisons and its mission to reform criminals. And so his, his rhetorical position comes out of this complex of problems. And his rhetorical position becomes, we need to be realistic about criminals. They cannot be rehabilitated. A criminal is a criminal and they are a lawbreaker. Criminals need to be caught. Criminals are dangerous. If, if necessary, criminals need to be killed. And anyone out there talking about rehabilitation is clearly on their side. They must be faking it. And so with this becomes the hint of his anti-New Deal stance. Because he's grounded in this idealistic philosophy of the possibility to uplift. I mean, we can see it today in the Green New Deal, right? The idea that you can organize public policy to solve human problems. It's 
that they call it the Green New Deal, that they're riffing on the New Deal makes a lot of sense because it's that same idea of if you think big and you think optimistically, you can you can address major problems. And so Hoover's coming back saying, no, you can't. And anybody who believes that is uh, or would say that is clearly mistaken. And so it, it, it's it's also very it, it's about political philosophy as well. And it's with this negative, pessimistic, cynical philosophy about human life and human nature, he grounds his identity and the role of the FBI in U.S. society. And I believe this is a tragic course for him, for the agency, and for America. Why? Because it sets us up in a trap. It means things can't get better. That that the best of America is in its past, and that... We need an agency that is above the law because democracy itself is a fraud, that democracy can't work. And keep in mind that Hoover is spelling this at the time where, you know, you get civil rights activism, where uh, uh, there, there's attacks on Jim Crow. So therefore, the civil rights and integration, uh, those movements, uh, organized labor is getting greater representation. So Hoover is saying democracy doesn't work at a time where more people are being represented by democracy. And notice that what it was just yesterday, uh, there was a senator who says democracy doesn't work. Uh, Mike Lee in Utah. Uh, Why is Mike Lee in Utah saying democracy doesn't work at a time when more people are registering, you know, against his pessimistic vision? And so you have this federal agency that's jumping in on this type of perspective, this democracy doesn't work. And so that means you have this agency that has a lot of power that also doesn't feel confined or committed or obligated to democracy, which sets it up on a a, a path for tyranny. like to join charles in the big rhetorical podcast the podcast is booking for next season now the big rhetorical podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond this record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric writing studies and technical communication as well as adjacent fields do you have a new book coming out are you hitting the job market this cycle The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com.
was Hoover's relationship like with FDR and then Truman? I would use the word either treasonous or disloyal. Treasonous or disloyal. Could you unpack those for us? Okay. So if we want to talk treason, at the very time that FDR is trying to rally America to enter World War II, right? So the 1936 to, to Pearl Harbor. Hoover, at the same time, is opening up private channels with the Nazis. And he wants to learn what they have to teach about scientific law enforcement. And scientific, in this definition, would have been eugenics, using race as a method to do police work. Okay, yeah, in 1939, the agency that would be renamed Interpol uh, gets taken over by the Nazis. And uh, Hoover, at this point, campaigns that the FBI should uh, go to go to its conventions and start uh, part, increase its participation. And so, I mean, to be fair, he had wanted participation before and uh, involvement before. Uh, but it, you have this moment in 1939 where Interpol gets taken over by the Nazis by uh, Reinhard Reinhold Heydrich, uh, who goes on to be uh, the architect of the Holocaust. And he and Hoover are corresponding back and forth about the, the power of scientific police work and uh, how they look forward to... He, uh, Heydrich is looking forward to the FBI being present uh, in Berlin at uh, their, their next convention. And the State Department contacts the FBI and it says, hey, uh, this is kind of creepy, don't you think? A, that these Nazis have taken over Interpol. And um, secondly, they've moved the convention to Berlin. Do we need to worry that this is now a Nazi organization? And uh, Tolson is the one who takes the phone call and he goes, no, 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 this is all hearsay. They have not overtaken the organization and it's only going to Berlin because every year the conference is somewhere else. Uh, Not to worry, LOL. But they knew better Uh, and they they understood what was going on. Uh, And this is evident because then in 1941, Uh, Just seven days before Pearl Harbor, the executive committee of uh, the FBI says very quietly, hey, we better pull anchor and uh, pull out of the the Interpol formally because we don't want to have any formal links to the Nazis uh, once Pearl Harbor does happen. So to save the FBI's face, we better like disconnect from the organization so we can so there's no links between us and the organization, which is a Nazi organization. And then a few days later, of course, Pearl Harbor happens. And so I say treasonous because uh, they are secretly learning from the Nazis how to do counter espionage and um, racist policing, scientific racist policing uh, from the Nazis at the same time that FDR is working very hard to go to war with the Nazis. And that is clearly disloyal. <laughs> and I think an argument can be made for treason. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, reason why I think uh, I would use the words disloyal or treason, is so time moves forward across World War II, and FDR is looking for support in, in war waging. And... Hoover starts telling FDR, hey, the reason why you're getting all this all this pushback on intervening into the war is because 
uh, your naysayers uh, are are quietly sympathetic with Hitler, which, by the way, is something probably was true of Hoover. But that's that's a, a side point here. Uh, and who he's targeting, who he is trying to turn FDR against are New Dealers. I mean, it's true that there are Republicans who are also isolationist, but he wanted to start dividing the New Deal apart from itself. So he begins saying, hey, this this New Dealer over here is isolationist and we think Nazi sympathetic. And that New Dealer over there is isolationist and we think Nazi sympathetic. And so he's beginning to turn FDR's opinion, uh, well, he's trying to turn FDR's opinion against uh, his Democrats in Congress. And so uh, through World War II, uh, FDR and, well, I mean, at the, to, to get into World War II, to, to sort of champion the cause for World War II, FDR picks up this language of the fifth column. And the fifth column is a metaphor that comes out of the Spanish Civil War where the general says uh, he had four columns of troops that surrounded the capital, and he had a fifth column of subversives within ready to take down the capital. And so Hoover and FDR pick up this language to discuss isolationists, that they are a fifth column trying to help Hitler uh, by uh, subduing American defenses. And FDR is interested in getting into war. Hoover is is interested in using that want to turn FDR against New Dealers, to create divisions against New Dealers. And Hoover spends the rest of World War II talking about those isolationist New Dealers as if they were Nazi sympathetic. And he begins to plant the seeds of the New Deal as a conspiracy against America. And in these seeds, he starts using words like Americanism a lot. And when you get into the history of this rhetoric of Americanism, you understand it has this progressive era, Teddy Roosevelt era perspective, and it it very much is a racialized perspective. And Hoover begins to use this racialized history of this type of discourse to spell out or, or imply uh, why the New Dealers would be disloyal. At the same time that FDR is doing work to integrate the armed forces, or at least um, better represent the needs of African-American workers in the armed forces. Uh, and also at the time uh, that the DOJ is going after peonage in the South, and peonage is a nice word for slavery, and some of the slave practices that, that kept on going on into the 1940s. Uh, and so at the same time that the New Deal is working on civil rights issues, Hoover is saying, Look at this fifth column that's creating racial divisions in America. And racial divisions in that context are the people who are on the side of civil rights. And so it would be on the it, it would be the new dealers if you if framed through that lens. And so there's another reason why I would say he's disloyal. And then when you get to Truman, it is straight up disloyal because uh, Hoover tanks the New Deal by uh, a widespread, wide-scale propaganda campaign against Truman. And he reorganizes Southern Democrats with Republicans to topple uh, the New Deal, arguing that it's a communist conspiracy. And he, he pulls this trigger and does this because it becomes apparent to him that Truman wants to replace him, that his, his job is on the line. And so he goes all guns out to... Um, 
discredit new dealers and discredit anybody who would come against him, uh, saying that they must be communist. How does the contemporary nature of red fascism and the rise of American neoliberalism impact the rhetorical rise of the FBI? So with the red fascism idea, right, it's this communism plus fascism, uh, so therefore authoritarianism, they begin campaigning uh, on this notion. Well, so, well, how about this? Well, let me step back. Um, okay, so New Deal philosophy was one of collectivism, that uh, American society needs to be organized such that uh, everyone has a safety net. Uh, and with it, it means the top can't get too high, so the bottom can't get too low. And so it puts limits on wealth through things like taxation. Uh, with an idea that patriotism is the act of taking care of the community and taking care of the country. The red fascism trope is something that was around during the 1930s, but it gets reinvented and reapplied in the 1940s at the, at the dawn of the Cold War in 1946. And it's the idea that all of everything I just said is communism, that patriotism is taking care of yourself with zero regard for the community, that any idea of community maintenance itself is a communist idea. Any legislation that would curb uh, acquisition or consumption uh, is a communist idea. Uh, any I, Anything that would limit uh, the property owners from what they do with their property uh, is a communist idea. And this then becomes the bedrock for neoliberalism, because as this philosophy is coming in, neoliberalism is on its rise. And you have FBI propagandists working with uh, the authors of neoliberalism, uh, promoting it, saying that neoliberalism is what is patriotic. Uh, discounting concerns for the community is what's patriotic because America is grounded on individualism and they trace individualism through Americanism and this gets us back to the frontier myth. And so the second half of the 20th century is, is grounded in this philosophy that we need this toxic kind of individualism that does not care about the environment, that does not care about the impacts that what people do with their money, what wealthy people do with their money has on the society as a whole. Uh, and it, it's been, I think, a, a disaster because it's kind of this attitude of, Everyone should just get to do whatever they want. Uh, hashtag or you know, asterisks by everyone. We mean people who have all the money to begin with should be allowed to do whatever they want, like a cowboy in the frontier who was not regulated by any kind of code of uh, of ethics uh, that would have would have been applied. You mentioned in the in your book that, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase. Your book also examines textual dimensions of the FBI. And I think I want to give credit again, I'm pulling some of your language here, which reveal it defied the constitutional order which justified its existence. Uh, what did you look at and how did you come to that conclusion? Okay, so the FBI starts as the Bureau of Investigation in 1908 by Theodore Roosevelt, which is a funny, we're back to Roosevelt already. The right. point of the Bureau of Investigation in 1908 was to go after a white collar crime because there was a perspective that uh, 
Now, especially white collar crime uh, that gets connected to Congress, because there's a case in 1908 where members of Congress are implicated in wrongdoing with uh, some land dispute that happens in Oregon. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt then says, "Okay, we need we need investigators. We need investigators who have the authority and the reach to operate at the federal level looking for high level criminal activity. You roll forward and then you have uh, World War One, and suddenly this agency uh, is getting bigger, but it's now being used also for uh, things like white slavery, uh, which would be, uh, it seems a lot like it's interracial dating or you know, uh, interracial couples. Uh, and then it sometimes gets used for kidnapping, but but it, 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 white slavery seemed to have a, a very strong racial component in patrolling racial lines uh, and what women could do with who. Uh, in this time, you also get uh, the anti-radical moment, so the Palmer raids in that era, and so it takes on uh, an immigration focus. And then uh, after the Palmer raids, the BI and the DOJ get just uh, investigated, uh, and Attorney General Palmer and his methods get discredited, and Congress says, you can't do this. This was all grossly unconstitutional, and uh, Palmer gets repudiated, and this repudiates Hoover because he was one of the chief architects of the Palmer raids. So it's clear that the Bureau of Investigation not supposed to do things like the Palmer raids. Uh, it's not supposed to do massive roundups. It's not supposed to do propaganda. Uh, it's not supposed to do illegal surveillance. And Palmer was doing all this stuff. And Congress looked at it and Congress goes, no, you can't do that. This is not justifiable activity. And so then the FBI goes dark. Uh, for the, oh, oh, then Teapot Dome happens and you have that scandal. And uh, then the DOJ gets reformed and the attorney general comes in and he says uh, he makes the mistake of not firing Hoover. And this attorney general would later on become a Supreme Court justice and say his biggest mistake was not firing Hoover at this moment. But the attorney general says uh, it is your job to scale this agency back as much as possible. And the only jurisdiction this agency has is to investigate evidence of crimes already committed. And that is it. So therefore, evidence that crime got committed, you now can come in and look and try to figure out what that crime was. And that's the wall. And that is that is your realm that you're supposed to be living in. So then you move forward to 1933 uh, and and you get the rise of the New Deal. And with that, the rise of propaganda. And we should say that you, know, you love FDR, but here FDR messes up because FDR, FDR needs propaganda or he thinks he needs propaganda to fight conservatives. And so FDR sees Hoover doing this work with Hollywood and he likes it because it's good. It's good copy for him. But then with this pro rise of propaganda and this rise of the mean streets vision of America and the rise of the G-men and the urban crime genre, suddenly you have a different world than the one that the attorney general talked about in the 1920s. You have this world where you need superhero enforcers who are allowed to go anywhere without constraint because America is about to collapse. And if they're not out there on the front lines, invisible, protecting us, we're all in trouble. And so this gives the FBI power to care quite little about actual jurisdiction, like what might actually be uh, in statute books, even though that, too, gets expanding. 
Um, but instead, the FBI jumps onto a cultural script. And this is really where its power lies, in the cultural script that gets created by Hollywood. Uh, so if, if law enforcement in Hollywood is allowed to torture, Hoover's allowed to torture. If law enforcement in Hollywood is allowed to spy, Hoover's allowed to spy, because that's what real is. Mm. And so now he is totally unbound. And this is why propaganda is significant for the FBI. I think then and now and the Pentagon, uh, people begin to imagine that a public agency, a federal agency like the FBI or the CIA or the Pentagon, they see how it's represented in Hollywood. And then culturally, that becomes the script for which how that agency gets to operate. Because now it becomes a matter of public opinion. So this reality is manufactured consent to accepting it yep how might your book and its argument be viewed against the backdrop of our current american political climate so it was quite disturbing in 2016 at hoover's sorry at trump's rnc speech when he said that americanism will be the credo of his administration because no one talks like that anymore and that bothered me because his mentor is Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn was mentored by J. Edgar Hoover. Right. And I just, I just saw a straight line. I think Trump gets these things. I think Trump is under the impression, rightfully so, that power works by representation. That if you control media and start defining what is real and what is fake, you create expectations in the public imagination about what an agency or what a government is allowed to do regardless of what's written in law books. And I believe the same patterns you see in Hoover's discourse, uh, recalling people parasite and vermin and snakes and cancer, uh, that evil underworld is about to rush in or flow in or flood in or swamp in. And so therefore we need boundaries and borders to separate the us good world, light world, white world, uh, and protect us from the underworld, which is dark and scary. Um, this is These are the patterns that mark Donald Trump's rhetoric. And I believe he talks this way to create this type of institutional power. This week at the vice presidential debate, one of the questions concerned the infiltration of white supremacy in the American law enforcement apparatus. What are your thoughts on the that question, but also the fact that that question was asked at the vice presidential debate? I am glad it was because I'm glad this problem is now on the radar. I also think law enforcement has been in the service of white nationalism for a very long time because I believe that is ultimately what law enforcement enforces. It is not about enforcing the statutory script. It's about enforcing the cultural script, and our cultural script is white nationalism. One of the connections that you made during our discussion that I found fascinating was the connection between the rhetorical rise of the FBI and scientific policing, specifically eugenics, Nazi eugenics. So I wonder, it might not be fair to speculate and just defer if you don't want to, but, but what's the future of scientific police work in connection to the arguments you're making in your book? So there are arguments out there already that the FBI's crime lab is bogus. 
previous or sorry, a previous assistant director, uh, William Sullivan, uh, said that in his book in the 1970s, and he was supposed to testify on that before he was killed before testifying to Congress. Uh, a hunter mistook him for a deer in his backyard, uh, which always seemed suspicious to me. Uh, and since then, uh, I know that there's been a, a, a movement to reinvestigate the crime lab and to open it, to, to examine its methods and to look at its cases uh, because of the concern that it could be manufacturing evidence. I, I hope that that's the future of scientific police work. I would like, I think that should be the first step is to investigate where we've been to find out do we count it as credible or has it how has it been a cover to some degree um, for the mass imprisonment of African Americans and others. Where can people find you online? Website, social media, things like that that you want to promote? Uh, I have a Facebook page called The Manufacturer of Consent. Uh, I also I am on Twitter, Stephen underscore M underscore Underhill. And I have a academia.edu page. Is there anything else you want to add about your book, our conversation, or things generally uh, before we I let you off here to go enjoy the rest of your day? Yeah, I think, you know, for an audience of people who enjoy rhetoric to begin with, I would like to just highlight, I believe the system is even more rhetorical than we think. As in... I think the institutions themselves are rhetorical, and I get that that's not groundbreaking because people are going to say, well, of course, it's not new to say institutions are rhetorical. But what I mean is I believe that we are living in a world of projection. And again, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, well, duh. Uh, but I believe the projection itself uh, is startling corrupt uh, and that, that we have we have broken hard off democracy and we have been off democracy for a long time. And I don't believe rhetoricians talk about this part, that if democracy is a system of consent, I would like to, to have a conversation of what is there to consent to if what we are basing our consent on is that projection. And I believe there's no, there, there's no heroes in this conversation. Like I believe, I, I mean, Republicans are clearly a, a threat based on where they are now. Uh, and they need to be reformed. Uh, but I don't think the Democratic Party has necessarily been good at uh, expecting more out of the FBI and the CIA and the Pentagon. Uh, all FBI agents, sorry, all FBI directors have been Republicans and somehow Democrats have been okay with that. I, I think that there is, this onion can be peeled back far more than uh, rhetoricians have thought to peel it. You may have, you've answered this already, uh, but as we start peeling back that onion, where do you want us to go? Where else do you want us to go? I think we need to reconsider a political system in the age of mass media. Walter Lippmann, right, the, the title of the book, Manufacture of Consent, J. Andrew Hoover, Rhetorical Rise of the FBI, the Manufacture of Consent, that idea comes from Walter Lippmann's book, Liberty in the News, and he wrote that circa 1920. And he, he said back then that democracy might not be possible anymore because of the rise of mass media. I think we need to have this debate uh, and we can't simply have the attitude of, well, let's just not think about it. Uh, how do we have democracy in the age of mass media should be a conversation that rhetoricians are 
quick to be a part of. And clearly the answer isn't tyranny, but the answer has to be what now? Like knowing what we know about mass media and how symbols work, what now? And I, I don't think the discipline has done done enough conversation because we need to chart out if not the limits of the First Amendment and free speech, how do we make sense of fake news? Uh, how do we protect against fake news? Uh, and, and, and the the saturation of, of propaganda. And a, a, a problem I've had working through scholarship is, you know, you, you'll read arguments from rhetoricians saying, uh, I don't like the word propaganda because anything can be called propaganda. You know, what's propaganda to you is education to me. Well, some propaganda is way worse. You know, when we're talking about straight up political misinformation from our political leaders for the sake of projecting a false reality to build an institution, that's different than having a difference of opinion on, you know, how to read a manuscript. And I think we need to have a conversation about um, what now. Thank you so much, Stephen, for this absolute, very fulfilling and exciting conversation. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I love the podcast, and it's very, very much my pleasure to be a part of uh, the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Dr. Underhill for joining me on this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I learned a lot from him and am excited to continue to read more of his work in the future. The Big Rhetorical Podcast finishes off Season 3 next week and we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us. We're now booking guests in Season 5. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at TheBigRet. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically.